Well, here we are on the 4th of July. It's one of my favorite um, holidays. Uh, birthday of our nation. I uh, wonder what you're going to be doing on it. You're in church. I'm glad for that. Good beginning. Good beginning. I'm, I'm guessing um, there'll be some picnicking. Hopes good food. Um, maybe watching some fireworks. I hope, I hope that's true. I hope you'll also take some time to think about some of the heritage on the birthday of our nation, some of the heritage that we have been uh, born into or those who were not born in the States or just come in, some of the heritage of this place. Uh, Last night, Chris and Brandon and I were watching some of the David McCullough's uh, John Adams presentation. It's just a remarkable thing that I would encourage you to do. John Adams, who who became president in in such an instrumental part of the early part of our country, making this strong case for what we call moral law, that all just and right laws really have to have their origins in the God who made this universe and in his character, his justice. It was amazing for me, sort of living in a postmodern world, to hear that case being made that I believe in so deeply, that the character of God is what determines what is just and compassionate and good and right. And to take time to think about people like our first president, uh, George Washington, who was such a man of prayer and was um, so aware of his own sinfulness, couldn't believe that God would forgive him and give him a position of leadership and wanted to lead right, righteously and justly, though he felt like, how can I, I do this? It, it, it's something that to me is inspiring. And I think for those of us who gather in a church, uh, like we are this morning, we are especially thankful for the very privilege of doing this, that this, this public open worship uh, and and I, I really don't anticipate that the authorities are going to come rushing in and stop us. And yet so many of my brothers and sisters in Christ around the world don't have this privilege. You know that, don't you? And when we leave this place, we have this other privilege of speaking openly about our Lord Jesus and asking people to believe in him too. And many of our brothers and sisters in Christ don't have that too. So, you know, I am one who celebrates this day. Uh, Some people criticize me for saying that, and I heard some even at the end of the service, but I'm saying it again anyway. I like to to sing I'm glad uh, to be an American. I I really pray and sing that God will bless and direct our country. And yet, you knew that was coming, right? The and yet part. Any of us, when we become followers of Jesus, we know what the Bible tells us, that we become citizens of, of another country and with an allegiance to that citizenship that even trumps any citizenship in this, in this world. That, that we never have to pretend that our government's leaders are perfect and none of them are no matter where you come from, including our own. Because only God is the perfect one. We now have our ultimate allegiance to the one who is the leader over all leaders, right? To the king who is over all kings. So that means that when we gather on a time like this, there's always a little bit of tension. And I think it's a biblical one, uh, a, a bit of awkwardness. The firework goes off and I say, yay, I'm glad to be able to be here in the freedoms that we have. But, but then always I say, but I know we're not perfect. We've got to pray for our country and I'm concerned about where we're headed. Do you ever feel that? So that it seems to me you have these two sides. You can celebrate the good things about the place where God has put you. And, and, and people do love their nations. It's not just our own. And if you don't believe me, watch the World Cup. Just, you are going to see it. 
we do that. But then this hard part of when we are brought into this other family that our text today is going to call a, a wholly separate nation from the nations of this world. How we live in this world with an ultimate allegiance to that king who are over all kings, I'll tell you that, that is an awkward thing sometimes. But I'm going to talk about it anyway. Because we come, and I think it is by God's leading, to the text in the Bible that gives us clarity and direction about how we approach this issue. And it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. Uh, even if you didn't bring a Bible with you, I hope you'll make note of that text because I think we need to come back to it again and again and again. It will tell us that when we come to Jesus, as we come to Him, we are built into something that is separate from what we were before, and they'll even call it a separate, a holy nation. But then he'll also tell us how we have to live in this world, not the way we used to live, but he'll even say, live such good lives, verse 12, among the nations. We're not going to be pulled out. We're going to be sent in among the nations that people will see you and even though sometimes want to accuse you of things. At the end of the day, they're going to see God at work in us and give praise to him. All right, so that's what we're talking about. Ready to go at it? I want to try to approach this the same way that Peter does because I just want to lean on the biblical text today. First of all, I want us to think about what God is building. What is this church? What is this nation? And he begins this way in verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, um, that's talking about Jesus, the one who shed his precious blood in spite of our sinfulness, for our sins, as you come to Jesus, the living stone, you are being built into a spiritual house. So it tells us that everybody who will become a part of what God is building in this world, every one of us will have to have come to Jesus. Now I'm going to come back to that at the end because it's so important. But when we come to Jesus in this very personal way, then we come to the main point that Peter is making. We find out that he builds us into something else. And it's something else that some people don't really want. They didn't expect. But God says, that's what I'm doing. So if you're going to come to me, you're going to come to what I'm doing. We are built into this spiritual house with a whole group of other living stones. Paul would say we become a part of another family. Here, Peter talks about us becoming a part of a building, one living stone among many other living stones. We become a part of other people's lives. And sometimes he brings us into this building with people we don't want to be with. Do you remember in Ephesians, the Jew and the Gentile, they wanted to come to God. They didn't want to come to one another. But God says, that's my family. So if you love me, you'll love my family. And here Peter puts it this way. You are built into this building and all of you become living stones. A place where God dwells. So many times in America, we think about the, the dwelling place of God, the temple of God being me as an individual, my body. But there's only one place in the whole Bible where, where that's used for me personally. That's 1 Corinthians 6. The rest of the Bible says that the place where the world knows that God dwells is us. As we worship together, as you and I learn to make adjustments to one another, as we serve together as very different people, but only because we love Jesus, the world is going to look at that and they're going to see something about God. That's what he says just as in the Old Testament, the visible place of God's presence, of His dwelling, was a temple 
with inanimate stones. Now that Jesus has come, God is building something else to tell this world that He is here and to show this world what He is like. He is building His people together and together we declare the glory and praise of God. Um, Ephesians put it this way. To God be glory, and by that showing the world what God is like, two main places where that glory of God is seen in the world. To God be glory in Jesus Christ, Paul would say, and in... Okay, I got one. In the church. Now, am I speaking clearly? Most of us should be shocked. Are you you saying, Pastor, that in a place like Lake Avenue Church, that the main place, if, if, if my friends and family want to see what God is like, I should say, come to church with me and you'll see it? You must be joking. Look at these people sitting around me. They're so imperfect. Look at this pastor of ours. How are they, how are, how are they going to see this? But do you remember, I, I used this illustration when we were in Ephesians, in which I said, think about it this way. Um, if, you, if you're a sports fan and you watch somebody like Kobe Bryant or, or as a Chicagoan, Michael Jordan, where do you see the greatest parts of their skills and their abilities? It, it's probably not going to be in the synchronized swimming pool. It, it will be on the basketball court. Music fans, if you want to see the, the greatest skills of a Pavarotti of a, or of a great, great uh, a music instrumentalist, you'll take a person to the concert hall. Uh, for those who love scholarship, if, if you want to find the great skills of a great scholar, you, you'll take us to one of the books and see their research or take it into the classroom. And so what the Bible is saying, you can see a lot about God in so many places, but if you really want to see what God is like, the places where you're going to look first are in Jesus Christ, the very incarnation of God. Just read about Him and you'll see what God is like. But if you don't want to read the Bible, come to church and you're going to see something about the amazing grace of God forgiving a group like this. The unity of the triune God as very different people are brought into one family. God is to be glorified. That means that the church is very different from what most Americans think the church is. Oh, we're such individualists. We think a church is a place we just sort of walk into and hopefully there'll be some good music that entertains me. And we did have good music. John, man, you guys play and sing so well and I like to sing with you. They hope that maybe the, the pastor won't bore them to death with this sermon. They, they hope that maybe if they really like it, they'll have some class about something they're interested in and then they'll just go out and live. But the Bible says, no, no, no. We are brought into one another's lives. And as we worship together and pray with one another and encourage one another and sometimes correct one another, we make adjustments. Living stones is what he says. And you know the way it is that when you have a stone in a building, all the stones around that stone have to make adjustments to fit in with that stone. And I feel that. Even coming to Lake, I just think that there was so much that God had built before I ever came. And I, I want what God would have me to be uh, to fit with the vision that He's given before and the people who've gone before me. And those of you who are coming in now, we're, we're shaped around one another so that that image means if one of us isn't here or isn't serving or if one of us walks away from God, the whole building shakes. We're not all the, you're important. We're important to one another. We need one another. And th- th- not only do we grow as we're, lives are shaped, but the world comes in and they says, boy, God must be in that place. Otherwise, they would never be there together. What does that look like? What I thought, and I'll, I'll take it to you, years ago when I was in college, 
I read C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And there was one section that I have never forgotten that helps me with this. And I want you to listen carefully, okay? C.S. Lewis was a Cambridge and Oxford don, so you have to think with him. Um, C.S. Lewis had a, a circle of friends, three friends, and one of them died. And he thought naturally, as we would think, if you lose one, then of course you have more of the other. But he found out that that didn't happen, and he wrote about this. He said, if of three friends, A, B, and C, A should die, then B loses not only A, but A's part in C. Are you with me here? Does it take a Sudoku worker to... To follow this, <laughs> while C loses not only A, but A's part in B. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I, I want some other lights other than my own to show off his facets. So now he said that Charles is dead. I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles-like joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Does that ring true to you? Oh, I see this family that I love in this. Th- we're going we're gonna to be less with you gone. God must be sending us somebody to be in that place. But I found that. Have you ever been a circle of friends and then suddenly somebody's gone and you're not laughing as much? What happened? It's because God builds us into one another's lives. I think if we wrote a book about this, we would write it. It takes a village to know a person. And I think that that's what God is telling us here. And I'll tell you, if it takes all of us to see a little bit more of, God, of, of one another, then just think about how much more true that is of God which flies right in the face of American Christianity. Did you know that George Barna, the pollster, did a poll of American churchgoers, and 81% said that they thought that they could know God and have a vibrant, growing, vital relationship with God without ever going to a church. I'll tell you, that's an idea of walking with God that comes straight out of our comfort zones, not out of the Bible. God, God puts us into one another's lives with people as strange as all of us sitting here today. And says, when you come together, you're going to see more. You're going to see more about me. And so, the people who say, I'm just going to worship God alone. I'll get to know God. I'm telling you, you're only going to get to know a little bit about Him. And if you say, but I don't want to be with a group as diverse as this one. I'm just going to have people I really like, like myself in my little house. There's a movement. You want, you're going to see only one perspective of what the great God is like. But instead, he builds us together. And together we know him. And together we make known his praise and glory to this world. And that's why in verses 9 and 10, we read this. Here's what you have become when you have come to Jesus. A chosen people. Chosen by God. A royal priesthood. The priesthoods were those who were pulled out to become a part of this. A holy, which means a separate nation in this world. You become God's special possession so that you, together, may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. And remember, Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. I read that and I say, thank you. Hallelujah. I look out. You are a bunch of mercy needing people. Did you know that? You and I need it. And we have found it in Christ, so we're so thankful and we offer it to all who will come. So you see what it's saying. When you come to Jesus, he builds us into something distinctive in this world. It is an intense uh, separate nation. That's the very word that he uses. And if that's what he's doing, then the big question comes is, how do we relate to the nations of the world where God puts us? Do we withdraw from it? Do we just take shots at it? What do we do? And that brings me to my second question. I better go quickly. How do we relate to this world? And that brings me to this 4th of July. And verse 12 really gives us a specific word about that. We go from our gathering together and then live such good lives, which means we live for our God in this world. We live with God as the ultimate leader of our lives in this world. Live such good lives His way among the nations that even though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits. Now, here I'm just going to pass on to you something that a friend of mine talked to me about all the time. He was a man, he's passed away now. I got to know him in, quite well at the end of his life. And he used to attend church here at Lake Avenue a lot. It was Dr. Carl F.H. Henry. I'm seeing if I see any recognition. It shows you that people forget. He was one of the great Christian leaders and theologians of the last century. He, along with Pastor Ockengay and Charles Fuller and others, were at the founding of Fuller Seminary. He was Billy Graham's closest friend at Wheaton College. And Billy Graham, he, Dr. Henry wanted to be an evangelist, but he wasn't any good at that. He was just a great, great journalist and thinker. So Billy Graham, his friend, became the evangelist. He became the theologian. And uh, Dr. Henry, Chris and I got to visit him in the assisted living center in the latter years of his life. And he always, when I'd go there, I always do an impersonation of him. Brother Waybright, he would say. <laughs> I'm glad for your visit, but I have an agenda. He would, he would always have something he wanted to make sure I got right. And uh, the thing that he so often talked about is this issue, because he was so concerned about it, about how we as Christians, followers of Jesus, live in the nations where God puts us. Because he, he thought that, that the followers of Jesus were going in wrong directions when he was a younger man. And he had written a book in the 1940s called The Uneasy Conscience of the American fundamentalist. And what he saw, and many of you, if you read history, you know that back in the 40s and 50s, the American church was divided into what some called liberals and some called fundamentalists. And, and he was concerned because he, as he looked at the so-called mainline church, he felt like they'd given up too much of the gospel and didn't see a difference enough in their lives. And, and so that he, didn't see, he thought that they were accommodating. But as he looked at the Bible-centered churches, he said they're withdrawing from the world. They're not involved in the academy and they're not involved in the entertainment industry and they're not involved in the political arena. And he was saying that, you know that the Bible doesn't leave us either one of those options. And so when you think about it, and he would often say there are two different extremes that we can follow in this matter of how we live in the nation where God puts us, whatever nation that may be. The first extreme is, is the one that I will call withdraw and attack. It's that feeling, we've got it all right, we know all the truth, 
So to become a part of that thing, you're going to have a doctrinal statement that's many pages long because you feel like you have all the truth. And then everything out there outside of your group is evil. So you withdraw and you kind of have your own groups all the time because you don't want to be tainted by the evil of this world. And then you don't get involved in the, in the places of this world. A man named Joe Bailey wrote about this. He called the book A Gospel Blimp. I still think it's a great book. He, he talked about people who follow Jesus kind of being in a, uh, a blimp, riding up above the world, and then just throwing these pieces of literature down at people, telling them what's wrong with them. So that, that's the withdraw and attack mode. The other one is what I will call accommodate and fit in. That means you just try to become like the people around and, and accept and welcome everyone. And so you're not going to have many things that you ask people to believe. Because you don't want to force some beliefs on people that they don't want to have. And you're not going to ask them to change their lives. You don't want them to feel uncomfortable. Everybody should be welcome just as you are. Everybody here can be at home, except, of course, for those who are intolerant. Otherwise, you can feel good in this group. Now, both of those groups, when you think about it, have one thing in common. They avoid suffering and awkwardness. The tension that I began the message with, they avoid it. Uh, the, the group, the withdraw and attack, avoids it because we only are spending time with people like ourselves and everything out there is bad. The accommodate and fit in, of course, you don't have anything you disagree with that any, or won't tell them that anyway. So, of course, there's nothing that they can disagree with about you. Uh, Dr. Henry wrote the book, The Uneasy Conscience, because he says any of us who has read the Bible knows that the life of Jesus doesn't leave us that option. And here I'm just telling you, Peter doesn't leave this that option. He says, listen, what's going to happen? Verse 11. When you come to Jesus, you're going to feel sometimes like an alien and a stranger in this world. You see that in verse 11? But I'm, I'm urging you, abstain from what this world is going to be tugging you to do, which he calls sinful desires. The world is going to tell you, live this way, live this way, think this way. And you're going to say, no, I've got to live God's way. And it's always going to be a war. He uses that word. It wars against your soul. No, no, no. He says, now you go into the world living such good lives among the nations. And you know, two things will happen. Sometimes they'll see good and give glory to God. And sometimes they'll just not want to live God's way and, and be irritated by it. And they'll accuse you of all sorts of things. The very same kind of thing Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, verses 1 through 12. Be different. He talks about these inner qualities that are like Jesus. And then he said, because you've got to be salt and light in this world. Jesus says, I'm going to send you into all arenas of this world. But when you go there, you've got to be salty. You've got to live God's way so that people will see your works, but then give praise to the Father in heaven. So that's, that's our calling, brothers and sisters. We are called into this thing that God is doing but we are called to be a part of this world. And sometimes we're going to see wonderful things and we're going to be shouting it out. We're going to have the fireworks go off and say, yay, I'm glad to be an American. And at the same time, we're going to be very concerned about some of the directions that our country is going. And we're going to have a prophetic role of calling us back to justice and to what is right. That, that's our calling and it's an awkward one. What does it look like, that life? Now I get to the hard part. So here's what I'm going to do. I have looked back for so many years of my following Jesus, at what brothers and sisters who have wrestled with this before you and I came on the scene, at how they said, this is how we live among the nations. And I, I, in, my, in the worship folder, I've even written some of it. In that 
first hundred years after the church was started, which would take us in the late part of the first century and into the second, uh, Christians were always wrestling with this. They saw what Jesus said and they saw what Peter said and said, how do we live for God in the nation that, that God has put us in? And I think wherever you come from, that this will have such direct application. Now, I'm going to tell you, when I looked at what our brothers and sisters did, um, they were like us. They're not perfect. So I'm going to pass on what they saw. This is not Bible, but the way our brothers and sisters applied the Bible. Maybe it will be, give us some guidance. I put together my top ten list of the first hundred years. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it different from David Letterman because I'm going to be different. He goes from ten to one. I'm going to go from one to ten. Okay? Number one, what's going to be, how are we going to live among the nations? A different citizenship. They had a commitment to being good citizens in the country that they were in. Scrupulously keeping the laws of their nation unless they saw directly that the laws of God contradicted the laws of their nation. Then they had to obey God. And that started as early as the book of Acts and Peter, was, who wrote this letter, was one who was involved in that. Number two, prayer. They prayed for their governmental leaders. Even when those leaders were persecuting them, even when the, Peter who wrote this would be put to death by one of them, and when, when the Bible commanded them to pray for their leaders, it wasn't just saying, get rid of them. It was praying for that, that, that they would be wise and do what is good and be kept from foolishness. And they were, had this commitment to pray for their leaders. Third, entertainment. Oh, Southern California, I'm meddling at this point. Well, no, this is my brothers and sisters before me. They refused to go to, go to bloodthirsty entertainment venues like gladiatorial competitions. And because of that, they were called antisocial. Four, social action. They cared passionately and radically for the poor. And as one emperor said, not only their own, they care for ours as well. Such a commitment. Five, diversity. Their gatherings demonstrated a mingling of nations and races and socioeconomic classes, even slave and free, coming into gatherings where they called one another brothers and sisters. It was considered scandalous by the Roman and Greek world. Six, sexual purity. Our brothers and sisters insisted that sex was to be practiced only between a man and woman committed to one another in marriage. Seventh, a respect for women. They allowed women to be involved significantly in their gatherings, using women's gifts in ways absolutely unheard of in the ancient Roman and Greek worlds. Eight, I called it doctrinal clarity, but I think it would probably be more doctrinal exclusiveness. They believed that Jesus was unique, the way to God, which put them at odds with their world, where people pretty much said you can hold to whatever gods you want, but for the Romans they said as long as the emperor was one of your gods. He insisted on that, but the Christians said no. Nine, a value for human life. They were opposed to the killing of children. You know, you know children in the ancient world weren't valued the way we do in our world, and so infanticide was, was quite common. But the 
Followers of Jesus were opposed to the killing of children, either in the womb or outside, thus rejecting the common practice that a family would have of ridding themselves of unwanted children. And women who are here, you know what usually happened. Uh, girls were gotten rid of when the family wanted a boy. And ten, a commitment to marriage. They were committed to marriages that would last. I'll just make a couple of observations. The first is this. I've thought that even though this was written to people almost 2000, by people almost 2,000 years ago, I'd try to picture what would happen if our brothers and sisters were transported into 21st century Southern California. And in our world where we have this big divide ideologically of what we often call liberal and conservative, uh, how would they feel? Where would they fit? Uh, I see in those ten that are there, some of them would make them look like full-blown liberals. Commitment to the poor, the value for women, an insistence that our gatherings will include all people, regardless of nationality and, and race and background. But some of them would make them look like the most right-wing conservatives. Definitions of sexual purity, uh, the value for unborn life, these exclusive claims about Jesus being the way to God. Uh, I feel like, you know what they would feel like, I think, if they came and tried to say, where do I fit in in the way the whole world here in this nation thinks? You know what I think they would feel like? Aliens and strangers. But I think it's to that that we are called wherever God sends us. To be in a place where we don't just imbibe any of the world's values, but we uphold God's and have the Word of God be the one that directs us. The other thought that I have, and I, we need one another to figure this out. If we were to make the list of the um, ten distinctive parts of our lives that would set our Lake Avenue church family apart from the rest of the world, what would, what would be there? Well, this is an awkward moment, I think. Maybe I should say what ought to be there. I'm going to let the Spirit of God continue to do His work. We're still living stones. God's still doing His work. Uh, if, if you're visiting, uh, we're not perfect yet. But God is at work in this place, and I'm just asking, where is He going to lead us as we represent Him well in this world? Now, some thoughts I just wonder about. Would God say something to us about the entertainment that we would watch? Would he say something to us about how we would pray for our governmental leaders? Would he say something to us about the breadth of people that we just insist on worshiping with? We're just not going to be with people only like us. We're going to be with God's people wherever we find our family. Would, would it say something about how we value life in our world? Would it say something about the radical way we care for the poor and the hurting in our community? Would it say something about our insistence that people come to Jesus as the way to God? Would it say something to us about our lasting relationships in a world where relationships are so quickly broken? Our marriages, but also our friendships. I just am praying as your pastor that the Spirit of God would keep showing us as living stones what this distinctive lifestyle will look like. Because I know our calling is that people will see the family of God and know what God is like, what He values.
All right, just before we have communion, the last question. How on earth are we going to know how to live this kind of life as aliens and strangers in the world? Now it'll take me back to verse 4. Remember, as you come to him, as you come to this living stone, and as you read, he quotes a lot of Old Testament verses about a cornerstone, a capstone that will come, then you are going to be built around that living stone into living stones bringing glory to God as you come to him. Now the first part is obvious. This is the very personal thing. You don't get into what God is doing until you've come to Jesus. This is the personal part of this walk with the Lord. Uh, The principle is this. Uh, I think you know it, but I'll just put it here. We are not joined to Christ by coming to a church. We are joined to the church by coming to Christ. When you come to Jesus, when you come to Jesus, then you are built. That means I can't do this for you. It's a decision you have to make. This this means your, your parents aren't the ones who come to Jesus for you. Your spouse isn't the one who comes to Jesus for you. You must come to Jesus. And so I, I don't, I, at the risk of me asking this ad nauseum, that you're saying every time I come to that church, Pastor Greg, you ask me the same question, I'm going to ask it again. Have you come to Jesus? Is He the center of your life, the Savior of your soul, the Lord of your destiny? When you've come to Jesus then, all right, first thing He asks, you'll see that there's a much more profound point that Peter is making because he's saying you come to Him as the cornerstone. I keep looking around to see if I see some builders around here. I know in our pastoral staff, Chuck, you're a much better builder, and John Stuthers, you're a much better builder than I am, so you guys should correct any, this, this is going to be a right illustration. You can help me make it better, but I know it's right. Builders in the ancient world, when you build a building, the first stone that would be established is called the cornerstone. All the other stones had to be shaped around that cornerstone. If it had a flaw, the building would be flawed. If it was out of proportion, the building would be out of proportion. Other living stones had to be shaped to one another, but they all had to be shaped to that one. The cornerstone doesn't change, the rest of the stones change. Are you beginning to see what Peter says? That when you come to Jesus, He becomes your cornerstone. He is the center of your life. You reshape your life and your community around the person of Jesus. And that changes everything. So we keep coming back and saying, what did Jesus teach? How did He live? How did He see people? What did He value? And we reshape our lives and our values and our relationships around the life of Jesus. We learn from one another as we see different parts together. But our lives get focused and we know how to live as Jesus is the cornerstone of our lives. There's a whole lot I want to say and will say in the coming weeks about that. But here are just a couple of statements. To do this, for this to make a difference in your life, I think you first have to admit that something else is the cornerstone of your life if Jesus is not. Read through verses 4 through 12 of 1 Peter 2 and you'll see that some people find Jesus precious. They believe in Him and find Him precious. But other people reject Him and they reject Him because something else is their cornerstone. And if we come to Jesus, He must be the cornerstone. So the question is, what is the cornerstone of your life? How do you know what the cornerstone of your life is? Here's the question. What is there about your life that if you pull that out, you feel like your life might crumble? Sometimes it can be a very good thing. 
uh, church leaders, Christian leaders, we're in danger of this as much as anybody else because sometimes we can make the thing we do for God the cornerstone. My life is worthwhile. I get to be a pastor of a big church. And, and, and so, uh, but if that's the cornerstone and then there's a congregational vote here that I don't show up and you vote me out, then what am I living for? See, the cornerstone of your life can be so many things. It can be a relationship with a person. If I don't have that guy, that girl, I can't really live. It can be your work, your business. It can be your reputation. I was talking with a wonderful Christian brother of mine recently. And he had earlier talked to me about going through a tough time. And he said, but I have two parts of my life. That as long as those are there, you know, I can have a lot of joy. And then God took one of them away. And he said to me, but I have the other one, and I think I value that one even more. And you know what happened, don't you? That one was taken away. A few weeks ago, we were chatting, and I was learning. I was seeking to learn so that I can pass it on to you too. He pointed out that one of the things that he, he felt was that many of us go to church, not to put Christ as the cornerstone, but to try to get him to give me what is the cornerstone of my life. If I pray enough, you've got to give me that thing. If I pray in the right way, you've got to give me that. And that becomes the cornerstone rather than Jesus. And he felt like that had happened with ministry. The, the thing that Peter would say to us, what is the real cornerstone of your life? Remember my quoting from Viktor Frankl, the, the, uh, the man who was put into a concentration camp, and the psychologist who analyzed who was resilient, who lasted. And he said anybody who was longing to get back what they once had, anybody who wanted to just hold on to their health, if they had something that the enemy could take away, the Nazis could take away, their life would crumble. The only ones who could really survive and live well were those who had found something at the center of their lives that their enemy could not take away. And what the Bible is saying, brothers and sisters, is that we have it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Jesus must be that cornerstone. And when He is, everything else changes. Oh, I, got, I must move on. You see, I was only going to say a word about that. Two, um, you must find Jesus to be precious. You see, some people reject Jesus, but God finds Jesus to be precious. And if you look down there in verse 7, those who believe find Him to be precious. That means when we look at the person of Jesus who gave his precious blood for us, we want to please him with all of our hearts. So this thing of following, coming to Jesus is more than just believing the right things about God. It, it's coming to have him become the hearts of our lives. It's like young men or women do I look around. Do any of you still remember that time you first met the young woman or man and you said, I wasn't really living until I met you. I'm looking down at Chris. <laughs> Some of you have forgotten. I, I, I could just see. You're saying, what is he talking about up there? But, but what, what we're saying when we say things like that is that I had a lot of things in my life before I met you, but when you came in, just life became so much richer. So that now if you were gone and I had all those things I had before and you weren't there and I had more, life wouldn't be very good. But if I lose all of those things and still have you, there'd still be a life. Now, once again, we should not have any person into that place of Jesus as, as the cornerstone. But I'm telling you, if we can kind of have that heart affection for a human being, 
how much more for Jesus. So that the one longing of our lives is to please Him. That, that's what guides me. Always thinking, Father, I have all these decisions to make. I have this message to preach and there's some hard parts in it. And the thought, the only thing to fear is, have I, have I pleased the Lord Jesus? You see? Because if so, nothing can be taken away. And what Peter keeps getting back to is we have these verses up here. This beautiful verse from 1 Peter 1.8 that he looked at. He said, you know about Jesus. Though you haven't seen him with your physical eyes, you love him. When you love him, it shapes the decisions you make because you want to honor him. And then third, just so simply, we must line up our lives with his. Just that simple, the old what would Jesus do sort of statement. But let me tell you, it is not easy. We'll feel like aliens and strangers. Because Jesus was the ultimate alien and stranger, wasn't he? He came and he lived in every way that was right. He loved people, but even though he was accused by them, he continued to serve those who accused him. Even though he was persecuted and put to death by, by people, he loved and gave his life for their sins and for you and me too. While we were sinners, Jesus died for us. But uh, do you say, he did that and he was crucified. And Jesus turns to us and says, don't be surprised if you do what is right and you live for me. And you will be accused of all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, if Jesus is precious and you pleased him, your life will give glory to God.